I am Richard Wolfie Wolf, and this is Wolf in Tune. All right, so today we're speaking with rock star and mega producer Brett Epic Mazer. Brett and I were the production team Wolf and Epic at the point where hip-hop was first crossing over with R&B and pop in the 90s. We worked on projects with Prince Seal, three albums with Belleville DeVoe, including Poison, and more. I moved into TV and film music, and Brett went on to have a very successful run with the rap rock group Crazy Town. So in this episode, Brett's going to share some highlights and some lowlights of his career. It's very inspiring to hear Brett talk about how meditation and gratitude practices have helped him with his struggles with addiction and how now he's able to stick to a life of sobriety. Without further ado, let's tune in to Brett Epic Mazer. This is great. Thank you very much for setting up the microphones, Brett. Hey, you know, uh, just send my check in the mail. Yeah, you're the expert on uh, <laughs> all things recording and engineering and producing. <laughs> so now that we have the microphone setting up, uh, perfectly. What are we going to do next? No, I'm, I'm really happy that you that you came. I haven't seen you in a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spend a lot of time together back in the day, mm-hmm. which was yeah. a Wednesday. <laughs> That's an old well, uh, Dane Cook joke. Oh, I back, wish back in the day, which was a Wednesday. <laughs> I wish I know. I have a joke about Thursdays, mm. <laughs> and it involves very hot weather and a hippopotamus, but I'm not going to get into it okay. right now. Sounds so getting getting what sounds interesting. Yeah, you want to hear it? We can always edit it out. All right. I don't know if anybody's going to like it or not. What is it? It, it, It's it's very hot day. As a matter of fact, it's so hot that steam is coming off the the ground. And this is someplace in 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 Africa, and and uh, the snakes. It's so hot the snakes can't even move, Mm -hmm. and the birds aren't singing, and they're two hippopotamus. And they're standing in water up into their eyes. Mm-hmm. And one says to the other, I can't get it through my head that it's Thursday. <laughs> Stupid joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <I> see, so, <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> I, I love it, though. Okay. Is Hannah laughing? I don't That's That's the key, if Hannah's laughing or not. She's just getting up off the floor. Yeah. So, anyway... <clears throat> Do you know why I hired you as an intern? Uh, yeah. Why? Um, because I was a young, motivated um, uh, programmer and um, aspiring um, musician and engineer that could um, come in and assist in your workflow. That's part of the reason. By the way, you're right. I should clarify that you and I we're a production team. Mm-hmm. I'm jumping a little bit ahead, and mm-hmm. we were very successful. Jerry Heller in his book, Ruthless, said we were the hottest production team of the early 90s, mm-hmm. and there's some some kind of truth to that. Mm-hmm. But we started because I hired you as an intern. That's partially true. Um, you were the only one that I knew that was into hip-hop and could do it. Mm-hmm. You know, And I, I was signed to Warner Chapel as a songwriter, mm-hmm. and you were the only one I knew, and you were very talented. Well, thank you. And uh, you were DJing in the clubs, right? Mm-hmm. What do you remember the club? What club it was? Uh, there was a lot, but I was at ballistics a lot. Ballistics, and, yeah. Uh, sometimes at like um, the El Rey Theater. All right. Um, 
Avalon, which was, right. I think it was called the Palace back then. Right. I wasn't like the guy, but I was I was getting put on. and you Well, know. you were doing it very seriously and very yeah. consistently. Mm -hmm. And you had your audience and, mm -hmm. you know, you know, were making uh, some waves there. Yeah. And anyway, you and I started to work on projects together. And uh, eventually we worked with Belle Biv DeVoe and everybody in New Edition and Prince and Seal and Freddie Mercury and Shana, I don't want to say, Sheena Easton, not Shana Easton, et cetera, et cetera. We, we, we had a, a very good run and we went our separate ways. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm going to pick up there because the next step was that, I, that I'm familiar with is you had this tremendous success I mean, this record that you put out was, you couldn't escape from it anywhere. You mm -hmm. went, you would hear this. Um, and it was a band called Crazy Town. Mm -hmm. And it was Butterfly was the title. Well, Butterfly was the song that went number one around the world. Yeah. And at the level of phenom phenomenon that um, is kind of hard to escape. Um, it was huge, a huge success. Wherever yeah. you went, you went to the gym, they were playing that song. And yeah, it was, um, we were on OzFest the year before, you know, the big traveling festival. Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy Osbourne's festival. Right. And we were on the small stage the first year and we're playing alongside bands like um, Slipknot and Head P.E. and um, Papa Roach and whatnot. I mean, these were our contemporaries. Um, and we were friends with the guys in Lincoln Park. I remember they broke huge with um, One Step Closer to the Edge. Um, yeah. So they're friends of ours, and we're just like, whoa, can't believe. Like, you see how many how many records are selling a week? Um, I wonder if we could ever do that. And so a year and a half later, you know, we, we had been building steady success. We Butterfly was our third single. No, I didn't know that. So Butterfly, um, when we made our deal with Columbia Records, it was it was uh, one of the reasons why we went with Columbia as opposed to we really had our choice of labels. But um, they agreed with the plan we wanted, which was we wanted to build. We knew Butterfly could be a huge hit a crossover. Um, but back then, um, as it's different now. Um, and after us, it became different where um, you could cross over and still maintain some sort of genre specific um, loyalty. But back then, the fan base was unforgiving. So as soon as you were being played on a pop station, your fan base let go of you. Oh. Yeah. So we knew that we needed to build a foundation of fans that were the, the, so that the potential success we could have pop-wise was built on a firm foundation, not just... Because if we would have put out Butterfly as the first single, it could have blown up and we didn't wouldn't have any real foundation of true fans. So we were on, the, on tour for a year and a half before Butterfly came out and did its thing. All right. So you hooked up with the, the, the rapper, right? I mean, you were doing all that. You wrote the, the music. Well, I was rapping too. And you were rapping too, yeah. right. But th what he added was the rapping, right? That he was a rapper. No. Sh uh, what's his name? Shifty. Shifty. And it was either no, Shady it was, or Shifty. No, it was more so that we we could 
bounce off of each other energy wise. I was producing Will I Am's first band, the what became the Black Eyed Peas. Right. They were called the Yap Band Clan. Right. So I was producing them. And um Will I Am said, You have to meet my friend Seth. I know him from the clubs and um you guys would make a good rap group together. So we started working on songs and our CDs getting passed around town and everybody's talking about it. And um, we we're kind of really locked in with the whole like hardcore scene. And we know the guys in Corn and Limp Bizkit and everything. And, um, and everybody's talking about Crazy Town as like the next big thing to, to break. And um, we had put a band together because we wanted to play with the band. And like, so it wasn't, you know, we were kind of doing the same thing. Whereas I could sing a little more than he could. Um, and it allowed him to be, take the more of the front man role, um, than, than I, cause I was the producer right. and writing, but I was also doing half the vocals as well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I was more into that side of things and he really liked being a peacock out in front of the stage. So right. let him go do that. Right. Yeah. But you made the transition from being behind the scenes, yeah, only behind the scenes, like working with you know great big artists and hip hop and R and B, and you made the transition to being a front man, to yeah. being a, to being you know. And the, I wasn't a great front man. I get really well. I could have told you that before you yeah, tried. <laughs> I just it's not in my. Well, no, that that okay. I feel that way. I have plenty of fans that say the complete opposite. Yes. Um, so for me, um, being on stage, it's an alter ego. And some of the best performers in the world have that same alter ego. Yeah. But I would go through this crazy list uh, of anxieties, depending on where I was at in my life, um, before a show. Um, you know, like, insecure about what I'm wearing or how I'm moving or how I'm, you know, whatever it is. But that being said... When I'm on stage, I know everything that's going on. I know if my, I know if my bass player's B string is out of tune, um, I can tell what the front of the house mix sounds like, give or take. Mm -hmm. I don't need in ears. I don't even need monitors. I can. I know where my voice is at, um, and I also know on stage that you can't let a little thing throw you off. You know, it's all part of the experience and the, you know, like I had to teach Seth Shifty, like, don't worry about if, you know, I missed one of your lines, you know, like we would have to trade off sometimes because we would run out of breath sometimes. So I knew at a certain point I needed to help him with one of his lines. And so it's a learning process. And he would like, he would, he would take it so hard. Like, like people were in the audience saying, oh, he, he. <laughs> <laughs> he yeah. forgot a line. Yeah. I don't care about that. Yeah. You know, just give a good performance. Yeah. So so it was a good it was a you know, a good give and take. Um Right. Yeah. Right, right. And it must have been a big high. I mean, before we were behind the scenes and you know, only the music fans know who you are, right? But in Crazy Town, you're visible, you know, you're out there. Mm -hmm. And so it's a different I'm I'm just speculating now that it's a it's even more intense of a high is that right it, when you're in, a performer in front of an audience and people recognize you and right it's unreal yeah getting in front of 
anybody, let alone 50,000 people. Yeah. Um, you know, getting up on stage at the whiskey is a high. But um, when we had worked with Belle Biv DeVoe, the first time I ever did anything in front of a live audience <laughs> was playing drums with right. them. Right. And our first show was at um, the stadium in, uh, I think it was in D.C., where the Washington Redskins play. And um, so we had done a lot of rehearsals, but this is our first show. And I'm on a stage that that spins, that turns. Ah. So I can't see the audience, but I'm sitting at the drums and we're doing a quick line check. We didn't have a sound check because it was a the Budweiser Superfest. So it was like Belle Biv DeVoe and I don't remember everybody who was on it. Maybe like Guy. I don't know. Whoever was big at the... I can't even remember. Mm -hmm. um, Keith Sweat, maybe. Yeah. You know, yeah. so the monitor guy or whoever, you know, was working in production told me to check, you know, snare drum, tom, 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 you know, kick drum. All right, hit the kick drum one more time. And so I'm hearing my drums coming through the through the monitors, my monitors. So I, I couldn't tell what was going on. But then he says, all right, hit the kick drum one more time. And I hit the kick drum and it's just like, Poof, and it was coming through the front of the house. And the crowd starts screaming. And uh, and then, like, within, like, seconds, he's like, okay, you're on. And, and he's like, go, go, go. And so I had to start. And it's our first song was Poison. And the stage starts turning. And I see all these people. And it was, like, crazy. Wow. Like, nobody, nobody even talked to me. Nobody even prepared me. Nobody said, this is, you know, like, maybe they said it, but it went in one ear and out the other. And, yeah. Wow. So maybe that hooked me. I don't know. Well, you, yeah, you were always were, you know, you always were rapping. Well, I was a DJ, so you yeah. know, I was used to performing, and I was a drummer. So, so for any musician that's that plays music, whether you're, you know, you got one person in the audience or fifty thousand like you had, and you're on stage, it's a high. You know, yeah. you're a, right. It's a big high. It's a big high just to be immersed in the music. Forget the audience. That's a that's an extra layer of of euphoria, but and then what happens is you have to come down, and you get off the stage, mm -hmm. and you crash. Yeah, and then you got to face life. Absolutely, and if you're intoxicated on top of that, it makes it even more difficult. The truth is, is it's a high unto itself. So so you're getting you were intoxicated when you were performing. No, usually not. Okay, yeah. But a lot of a lot of performers are. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, for them, it's a double crash. I I wasn't intoxicated because I was never a good drinker. I tried it once. I try. Uh, we were playing at House of Blues in Orlando, and decided to have some of their specialty drink there called a Purple Hooter. I think it was called. Mm -hmm. And I must have had maybe two or three of them. Mm -hmm. And we come out and we're doing our first show. It's headline tour for us, places packed. And um, the first line of the first song was mine. And the band's playing. It's this heavy song called B-Boy 2000. And the band stops. And I just deliver my line a cappella. And I dry heaved in the middle of the line. The band wasn't even playing to cover it up. Uh -huh. And so I dry heave. Uh -huh. And then they come back in. And I think the crowd probably noticed something was wrong. And I go to the side of the stage and I threw up and uh -huh. I came back, jumped right back into it. But that was the last time I drank before it. But, that's me, you know. 
But intoxicated, when I sing intoxicated, it could be on drugs. Yeah. And that's what I mean. I mean, I smoke some weed, but I, I tried to I tried to be as in the moment as possible on stage. I took it I took it seriously. And I wanted my band to take it seriously. And my philosophy was like, listen, you, you can do what you want after the show, but I want everybody to be at their best when we're on stage. And, um, you know, I wasn't like a police. You know, I remember one show, our bass player w got so drunk that he had a like, I think he was leaning up, a, there was a pole. I don't know, for some reason there was a pole on stage maybe, uh -huh. or maybe it was his cabinet, but he, he had a lean against something so he wouldn't fall over. And I was like, bro, that's come on, you know, like take this seriously. It's so, it's an opportunity not too many people get. So you weren't doing drugs at that time? Not really. Well, when did it? Oh, no, I was. Yeah, I was. What were you doing? Uh, I was probably doing a lot of speed, weed. In combination Xanax. At, the, at the same time, you're doing weed and speed? Um, yeah. Why? Up and down. Do you know why? You, you, I mean, you didn't do it when you performed. You performed. No, no, to no. Show, well, so, when so. you're when you're on crystal meth, it's always like it takes a long time to go away. It's it's a bad, dirty, disgusting drug. Are you doing crystal? Yeah. Okay. When did you start doing that? Because when when we were together, you weren't doing any drugs. No. I don't know. I was a late bloomer, and um, it was just really popular at the time in in L.A. A lot of people were doing it, and um, I like I said, I didn't like drinking. It kind of um, made me tired, and um, but um, Crystal, you could go in the studio, or I could go in the studio and work for hours or days, you know, and um, okay. Yeah, and you think you're being really productive, mm -hmm. but you're really just spinning right. your wheels, you know. I mean, I was lucky, lucky to have accomplished what I did. And you think you need that crystal for your creativity or productivity? You think you needed it at the time in order to stay productive? No, I mean, yeah, I guess part of, part of it is that, but it's just I didn't know how to stop. I knew I didn't need it because I'd been creative and successful before that. Right. Um, and then when it became when it became a problem, when when the drugs started using me, um, I really didn't know how to stop. And um, the police um, fortunately intervened and helped me, you know, stop. But um, you know, I got arrested as I've told you, yeah, um, got arrested. It wasn't, uh, I was a bystander, but I got caught up and, and then I went into rehab. So you were arrested for, because you were in a place that they were doing drugs? No, I was arrested because I was in a car and my friend had drugs and they pulled oh. us over and they oh, found okay. the drugs. And so- And you had, spent four days in jail. Spent four days in jail and I went into rehab, got out of rehab. We had already started Crazy Town and then- um, Shifty was in rehab at the same time and we got out and then at 11 months sober, um, we had a major recording contract on the table. Many of them. We just had to decide which label we wanted to go with. And so there was a joint being passed around and 
I decided, hey, I don't want to give up smoking weed for the rest of my life or drinking wine with dinner, as if that's what my use looked like, which it didn't. Um, but I gave up my sobriety at 11 months. And um, I was a very high-functioning addict. Um, Wait, I don't get the connection between the record contract that made you feel powerful? Made me feel powerful. Made me feel like, well, look what I created. So I don't want to, you know, I'm too young to be sober for the rest of my life. I was looking at the rest of my life. And I felt like if I, at 11 months, if I didn't get a year sober, then um, it wouldn't be such a big deal. Whereas if I hit the milestone of getting a year, now I feel like, oh, now I got to get two years, you know. So, um, so it was a celebratory mood. Uh -huh. It was my first time, you know, getting sober. Okay, you know, uh, I wasn't like when I took, you know, when that joint was being pass passed around, I think it was a blunt. I think it was probably a blunt or something. Um, I don't know if I would have given up my sobriety for a joint. So it was like something more substantial. So the blunt's getting passed around and I felt like... Um, um, no, it's, you know, I don't want to give up weed for the rest of my life. I didn't have a problem with weed. Right, I still don't so, have a problem with weed as far as what it is. You know, you can use anything excessively and out of moderation. But, you know, I definitely didn't want to go back to the, to the harder drugs I was doing. That wasn't the, that wasn't the, the plan when I decided I wanted to partake with everybody. So you were thinking, hey, look, I, I, all these record companies are offering us all this great money. Why should I deprive myself of the experience of doing weed? I guess is exactly. what you're thinking. Uh, I deserve, you know, so my success means it's not enough. I need to also have the weed on top of the success. Oh, I, I got this. Like, okay, I was <clears throat> sober for 11 months. You know, things are great. Look what I created or what we created. Uh, part of it is I, you know, it's mm -hmm. like this ridiculous thing right. um yeah and um so i just you know i wasn't if you're if you're gonna get sober you have to be ready so i wasn't ready so just by smoking a little weed that means you're not sober anymore right not as far as the program that i was in so what happens after that you that that's not gonna make you into you know a, a unfunctioning a, a well, it's, it's a disease weed is no addiction or yeah alcoholism okay um it's all the same um there so, are different programs that focus on different things but it uh, uh, you know what you're using is a personal choice but you pick up where you left off so i didn't know that you know i didn't realize and so i don't remember how quickly it escalated back but yeah. you know during the time of crazy town i was you know, always struggling, you know, sober, not sober, sober, not sober, you know, just trying. And um, uh, we were friends with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and would talk to them about it. And, and Anthony and those guys were going through similar stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, we weren't unique at all as far as that oh. was concerned. Oh, yeah. And our first tour was with them, opening up for them and, um, uh, Your Australia. first tour after Butterfly? N no, our first tour. Oh, really? Yeah. The very first, because you sampled the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, yeah. right? In Butterfly. And we had the same management, too. So they put us 
out with them and we got to open up for them. So Oh, that's interesting. It was a big management company, right? Mm-hmm. Q Prime. Q Prime. They didn't have Metallica too? Mm-hmm. And they had yeah, they were huge. And they yeah. were your managers. Yeah. I see. And so they put you on tour with Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm-hmm. And that's where you got the idea to sample them? No. No. Okay. I was just a fan. It was an obscure song. Okay. Um, did it in the real tradition of good hip hop. Okay. I mean, um, rock fans or alternative, like there, we had some fans that didn't understand the art of sampling. You know, people, people would be like, oh, they stole that song. It's like, yeah. oh, come on. Like, you don't get hip hop at all. It's how you use it. You know, we didn't take, like, nobody even knew. It was so obscure. It was one little piece uh-huh. of a song called Pretty Little Diddy. Uh-huh. And, the Red Hot Chili Peppers never approved samples. They never licensed samples. And they loved what we did with it. It was homage to them. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it was dope. And so, I mean, I'll put this on the record. Anybody who wants to talk shit about Crazy Town sampling that song, mm-hmm. it's like, just shut up. <laughs> you don't know anything about real hip hop. I'm not trying to even say that we're real hip hop, but that's what I came up inspired by. And that's what I was constantly trying to do. And whether or not it came out good or bad is a subjective point of view that you may have, but its origin and its organic nature of what we were trying to do was completely in line with hip hop. Well, to me, you're an OG and, <laughs> and you're, if you're not real hip hop, who is? Right. Well, you know, I mean, we were definitely, we had a band, we were, you know, we were, they called us rap rock or whatever, but right. you know, at the end of the day, we were kind of inspired by what the Beastie Boys were doing. Right. You know, they right. picked yeah. up their instruments. Right. It's like we were we grew up huge Beastie Boy fans, mm-hmm. um, and so we we were just continuing that right. that lineage right, right there. And that was a movement at that time. Yeah, by the way, the rap rock. It know, was a movement, and we were part of the movement. Right. You know, we weren't trying to copy anybody. We were just right inspired and part of this whole thing that was happening lincoln park as you mentioned lincoln park um we were actually a little bit before them faith no more were they part of faith no more and then there were like punk rock bands there was you know bad brains and um there was a lot of there was a lot of music that kind of and bands that either they stuck their whole foot in the water or were dipping their toe but you know our inspirations were we're so, big. so when you were doing, I just want to be clear because because when you were basically doing production and behind the scenes, right? Whether it was whatever we were doing or what you were doing with um, Will I Am and the Black Eyed Peas, etc., you weren't doing speed at that time. Crystal no, Matt. it was only when you went in front of the, you know, front of the. No, mic- it started. It's when, when does I, it start? I, it started before that, but. Um, it was just part of life in Hollywood. It started, it started when I was working with Will, and it, and, and when I was working with um, Blood of Abraham. Okay, speaking of Blood of Abraham, mm-hmm. that was the group we had that Easy E signed to mm-hmm. Ruthless. Mm-hmm. Now, now, as far what I remember about Easy E hanging out at the studio and all that was weed. Right, we can talk about that. I mean, he he had pockets. One pocket was full of weed, and the other was full of cash. Right. The only thing, only drug I ever saw him do was weed. Is that right? I mean, did you see him do anything else? That was no. it. Yeah. 
So th- at that time in hip hop, it was w- weed that everybody was doing, you know, sometimes 24 seven, but for the most part, I know there are, but for, that's all I saw. Did you see anything different? No. no. Okay. So you, you get this contract and you decide to go with whoever you went and you start, um, then what happens? You, 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 you went back into doing speed because they say weed is a gateway drug. So if you were an addict at one point, starting out on weed and then evolving into uh, crystal meth, you, you, what you're saying is it could happen again, that you starting out on weed and then you evolve back. I don't again. know exactly how it happened, but you know that was, that was one of my drugs of choice. I was really a, mostly a stoner but there was the party aspect of the of the speed and um you know like a lot of other guys are they have the same thing like Tommy Lee like we were on tour with Tommy and like he was like sober at the time and like I was sober when we were on tour with them but then I went back out and like I remember the first night of that tour like Shifty like was like off on a binge it was just the first night of the tour and Tommy is just like dude like I I love you guys, but like one of the reasons why I picked you guys to, you know, why I wanted a tour with you is because I thought you guys were all sober, you know? It's a constant struggle trying to, you know, be sober um, or maintain some sort of like um, moderation on tour and dealing with all the, all the struggles, highs and lows and maintaining on tour and, being in a band and a successful band on top of that. And, um, you know, your days are filled with like interviews and photo shoots and then a show. And, you know, there were, there were other people that I could talk to like Tommy or Anthony Kiedis. And, um, they were, they were, you know, obviously Tommy Lee, you know, long before he was solo and with Motley Crue, he had a lot of experience and he was, he was really cool, and uh, he was forgiving with Seth. We finished that whole tour with with his. It was called Methods of Mayhem, but um, yeah. yeah. But then I ended up uh, just finally, you know, getting completely. I gave up the hard drugs in like two thousand three or four, and then um, I was just smoking weed and drinking, and really had no like real spirituality. Um, what were the hard drugs? What were the hard drugs? Yeah. Like crystal meth crystal or taking meth. ecstasy. Yeah. Um, you know, popping pills, you know. And you were doing that, you're saying, because you were just, you couldn't stop doing it? Or what was... No, I was just doing it. And then I just, I decided, you know what? I have been through rehab before. I had a son that was, you know, growing up. Um, I didn't want to live that life and I just stopped doing that. And then I was just kind of drinking and, and as far as what I would do, smoking weed and drinking. And then eventually in 2006, I decided I actually wanted to go back to AA and AA in LA is amazing. And there was a lot of young people that were sober. It was cool to be sober it was great meetings. It was, you know, a spiritual foundation, a spiritual program and a way of life that really appealed to me in this moment of clarity that I had. And I decided I needed a, a positive change in my life. 
So you mentioned the ups and downs and you were successful. And even though you're successful, you have ups and downs. Yeah. And in order to help cope with those, you were doing drugs. That was a way to help. Exactly. Because it made you feel good or made you feel. Exactly. It made you, it could make you feel euphoric. It can make you feel powerful. It can make you feel, um, you know, it's a social lubricant or, um, it's a, a creative motivator. Um, you name it, you know, when you're an addict or an alcoholic, it doesn't matter. It could be, um, something great happening, something bad happening, nothing happening. You know, the disease finds its way to say, Oh, we should have a drink now. Right. You know, mm-hmm. or we should do a line or you mm-hmm. know, whatever it is. So it mm-hmm. finds any excuse. And it, it, and obviously it made you feel good. Obviously it made you feel more in control of what you were doing. I mean, at a certain point, then at a certain point you're just doing it and you're just, you're not feeling good. You know, it's it's not, yeah, it's just. So what are the downs that you, you confront when you're successful? You you have a number one record selling millions of records and, you know, audiences. What are, what are the downs? What's the downside? Crowds not liking you. Uh Uh-huh. The next single not doing as well. The radio promotion guy thinking that the next single's not good enough. Um, um, Anxiety about the next release. Anxiety. Yeah, whatever. Like you have to do press that you don't like the magazine or you have to do this TV. You have to answer the same question every day over and over and over again or questions. When you're in a big band, you're you're spending more time being a model than you are being on stage and playing music. What do you mean? Well, you're out there selling your records. So the label, you show up at a ta- at a city and yeah, sh- sound check might be at three or four o'clock, but you're booked from 10 o'clock. You're doing, you're doing interviews and, and photo shoots and, got to go do the, to the radio station and do an interview there and promote the show. And you're being, you know, whisked around and you, you have a full day before you even, by the time, by the time you're relaxing before showtime, right. you've already had a full day. It's, it's like being a baseball player. You think you go to a baseball game and they just showed up and they play a game. No, they were there since one or two o'clock in the afternoon taking batting practice and ground balls and, you know, doing it. So even though, you know, show the show is only two hours long, you're putting in a full day every day of work. I was wondering what baseball players did the rest of the time. <laughs> so now you, now you, you went to AA and the, you know, you got um, sober as, as you say, mm-hmm. and you have a meditation practice. You told me. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that. Um, did they get you started to med- in meditation? Well, meditation is um, it's a big part of the 12 step program. Right. Um, it's a practice. Yes. It's not easy. Yes. In the 11th step, you know, we continue to fulfill our, our daily ritual of self-examination um, on a, on a micro daily level, there's, you know, there's, there, there are the steps that take, you know, into consideration the vast majority of your life from the time you can remember. But part of a daily routine 
is taking account for, you know, um, in your 10th step, you know, what could I have done better today and how can I improve tomorrow? Um, and then it, along with that is meditation. Um, and, um, so a lot of that is kind of wrapped up in just, um, or at least at the beginning was purely just when I could, when I would remember to try to be silent and make a gratitude list and verbally, you know, count the things that I'm grateful for in my life. That's part of your meditation? Mm-hmm. I see. So it's a gratitude meditation. It's gratitude. I'm grateful for my mom and dad. I'm grateful for my son. I'm grateful for the work I get to do. I'm mm -hmm. grateful for this house I'm living in. Mm -hmm. You know, all the all those things and really try to feel it. Mm -hmm. And then just to shut up and be quiet mm -hmm. for 10 to 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. and, um, um, and if I would just say that even in my head and lay in bed for an extra 10 or 15 minutes and be awake, but close my eyes and just try to let go of all thought. Um, that was a great way to, to just kind of meditate. And I wasn't sure how effective it was or wasn't, but I would try to do that as much as I could. And how do you sit? You say you sit or lie down in silence for 10 to 15 minutes. What are you doing? How do you maintain silence? I mean, isn't your mind still working and thinking and that's why it's a practice because uh -huh. um how do you keep thoughts from uh -huh. coming into your mind uh -huh. so you can't you can't right. so you just the thought comes in and you let it go ah and so that's why the practice works so you know i'll just be laying in bed and and then all of a sudden you know concern about what i have to do mm -hmm. today yeah you know but that's why, um, you know, that's why meditation right when you wake up or when you're really tired before you go to bed works really well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those are the two best times or, or well, it, it's different for different people. But yeah. I find myself too in the morning Yeah, when you're fresh and that's, at night too. Yeah, I would, I and as I got deeper into it and I started doing longer meditations mm -hmm. where I really allowed myself along with, you know, playing some music and leaving the bedroom and going into another room and closing the doors mm -hmm. and sitting, um, you know, just sitting in a chair like mm -hmm. this, mm -hmm. close my eyes and mm -hmm. it would take me 15, 20 minutes before I was getting into, you know, alpha. 15 or, or 20 beta. minutes to calm beta. down, to calm your no, mind. No, alpha. Yeah, beta so. is our fight or flight, you know, kind of state right. where where we're totally like cognizant, but before I could kind of calm down and thoughts aren't creeping into my head anymore. Right. And I'm really able to, to, to sit in it and start to float and start to kind of, um, deconstruct. What does that mean? Um, so there's no more thoughts of like, Oh, I got to see this person today, or right. I have to do this or do right. that. I got to pay this bill or whatever. Right. Now I'm able to start to identify. Um, this is a, with a longer meditation. Yeah. Um, anxieties I have. You know, I no longer want, you know, I want to remove this anxiety I have over finances or, 
my relationship or I want to release this bondage of whatever it is. And it's kind of like a little bit of a mantra, but not repeating it, just saying it once and then back to silence again and verbalize it, you know, so it's, it's out there in the physical world and then back to silence. And then, and then after about another 15, 20 minutes of that, start to rebuild mm -hmm. the person that I want to be, you know, I don't want to procrastinate, you know, I want to, you know, be proactive in this, or I would, you know, want to make a million dollars, whatever it is you want to say, you know, just start to, to, to get rid of the, the shit you don't want, start to ask the universe for the things you do want. I love the fact that you talk about silence because I think we as musicians have a special relationship to silence. We don't experience it as much as we could or should. And when we experience it, it's a very life-changing, deep, profound experience. Silence is like stillness, right? It, it can taste like white light contains all the colors of the spectrum. It's the source of everything. Mm -hmm. And it's a gateway to what's beyond sound and silence. Mm -hmm. So I love the fact that you're talking about to sit in the silence. Where do you put your attention in the first 15, 20 minutes of your meditation um, when your mind is still spinning around? But where are you trying to focus your attention when you're just... Oh, lying there in the first well, I learned, I learned about, there's a few different techniques that help you do that. There's a number of them, but you kind of, in a weird way, you're trying to let go, but I will actually focus on different parts of my body okay. in the room that I'm sitting. Mm -hmm. And at least that focuses my attention on something other than, you know, Right. The the dialogue that wants to creep into my head. Right. So like, for instance, there's a water one that I've used, you know, where you're sitting there and you're imagining, you know, water rising up from the floor. Um, not that you would drown or anything. Yeah. And you feel it on your feet and then slowly you feel it on your calves and then your knees and eventually you're underwater, you know, or imagining where you are in space. What does that mean? Are you floating out in outer space? No, where where you are in in where this you, room. In this room. And then where this room is within the planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And where this planet Earth mm -hmm. is in relation to mm -hmm. solar system. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so on and so on. Mm -hmm. So visualizations. Mm -hmm. Your eyes are closed and you're visualizing mm -hmm. stuff. Are you aware of sound at all? Or another one is like just trying to feel, you know in stillness, you know, do, am I feeling my toes? Am I feeling the tips of my fingers? You know, my feeling, you know, and mm -hmm. try to imagine that, you know, just, just being, um, uh, just focusing on, on you and your place in the physical and metaphysical universe, but, but getting to the metaphysical part by kind of focusing on the physical part and then True. it's weird and then it works. Yeah. And all of a sudden the chatter is gone. Really? It just for a while. Anyway. For a while. Yeah. And then it comes back. No, sometimes it'll come back in the middle, but yeah. it, you just yeah. let it go. Yeah. And do you feel very awake at, at those moments? Do you feel energized? Is it, is it, is it, when what? 
when you're in silence, when the, the thoughts stop, when the chattering stops. Oh, yeah. It's energizing. It is energizing, but yeah. you're in like this really like, you know, you're my, my, my heart rate is probably at like 40. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. Right. But um, that's a paradox. But uh, yeah, but you're I'm extremely calm. Yeah. But there's this powerful yeah. energy that mm -hmm. you're flowing with. Yeah. So that's great that you've got. Now, do you have a focus on your breathing? Yeah. Does that help? Is that good? Yeah, it starts out with, with breathing exercises. Okay. Just deep in and deep out, you know. Are you counting or you just say deep in, deep out? It depends. There's Sometimes no, you count? Yeah. You're counting your breaths? Sometimes I'll count my breaths. Do you ever count it rhythmically? Like, oh, yeah, well, I, I run a lot. And I count rhythmically when I run and I'm breathing. Um, but yeah, like a one, two, three, four, one, two, three. Yeah, four. that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. As a drummer, mm -hmm. that's natural, right? Yeah. So th that way you you kind of, you're setting a pace. And you do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I do it probably more subconsciously, like yeah. automatically. Yeah. Automatically. Yeah. So do you, so when you're counting, are you counting like on the inhale and then on the exhale too? And Oh, I'm counting both. You're counting both. Yeah. Do you ever hold your breath? Yeah. Right. It'll so. it'll be like three not held and then one held. And then three not held and one held. Three breaths, you yeah. mean? And then you'll hold. Yeah. Oh, you'll just hold. But you have I might to. hold it for as long as I can. Yeah. And then and then yeah. exhale. And that's very powerful right there. It's it? huge. That's I huge. do it with my Apple Watch too. It tells me to do it all the time. <laughs> it'll it'll be like breathe. Yeah, it's time to breathe, yeah. But yeah. I don't do it with the with the app. Because I'm usually that. busy. Like I'm like when it's like breathe, it's like, dude, I can't breathe yeah. right now. I'm in the middle of something. <laughs> but it, but in your meditation, you don't use an app. You're all all on your own, right? You were taught these techniques. Well, I I learned the techniques through an app. Not oh. an app. No, not an app, a, t uh, a, a guided meditation. From the AA? No. On your own, you just found these? No, no. It, I, I read about the long-term meditation through um, breaking the habit of being yourself. He's looking up in his, for those who can't see what we're doing, he's got his phone out and he's doing something with it. I guess he's trying to find the book. Well, because I got to give, yeah, Joe Dispenza. I was, I lost. So Dr. Sounds Joe familiar. Dispenza, yeah. um, he did a study on the synapses in our brains and how we are conditioned um, and how we um, unlearn things that we innately knew and how we can rebuild, um, we can rebuild ourselves, we could heal our, ourselves. It just seemed, uh, it was a, it was a, just to make a long story short, it was the connection between the physical and the metaphysical universe and, and the role that we can play in resolving that, that conundrum, that separation, um, and be the masters of our universe. And, um, you know, he even tells a story about somebody that meditated their way to winning the lottery. You know, I don't know. If oh that's, boy. I don't know if that's true or not. I didn't care. What I really wanted at the end of this was I wanted a practice to get into, um, a longer, more meaningful meditation. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just started reading the book and it was, it was really good. Um, and but, it gave you these techniques. Yeah. But the, the, the techniques that he talks about, he didn't create, he, sure. you know, his, 
his foray was into the the science and the the teaching in the rest of the book. And then when you get to the end of the book, he is advocating for meditation, which he obviously knows <laughs> he didn't create, you know. And so right. along with advocating for meditation and, and the role that it can play in our lives, he offers up a few suggestions of things that have that work. Um, right. Yeah. So you have this repertoire of meditation techniques, a lot of which you picked up. From so this before, book. before, before Dr. Joe Dispenza, my techniques without research and development on my own would be sitting in a hot tub, really hot tub with a candle. So for some reason I needed to be in really hot water with the lights out, looking at a candle mm -hmm. to try to mm -hmm. keep the chatter mm -hmm. from coming into my head. Mm -hmm. I get the looking at the candle because I do that at night too. Yeah, a lot of times because the candle keeps you focused. Well, and the candle is would serve the same role as, as like the water rising technique or, your body parts and space kind of technique. It's you're focusing on something physical, right? Yeah, you're focusing in in one direction on something physical, so you're steadying your mind, your attention. You're it's kind of like focus. when you're in a, on a ship or on a boat, rather, and you don't want to be seasick. You're supposed to keep your eyes on the horizon. Oh, that's a good point. That's beautiful. I love that. I just came up with that. You did? Yeah. You're supposed to keep your, your focus on the horizon? Well, that's you're supposed just, to do that, but I just made that, that tie. Get that connection. Yeah. That's great. That's a, I got to remember that. Yeah. You're not stealing that one from me. Well, I, I'll give you credit. <laughs> <laughs> you got to... I didn't know that when you're on a boat. Your What's next it? book's going to be called Eyes on the Horizon. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good title. Yeah. Eyes on the right. That's good because yeah, when you you, I love daytime or nighttime, but at nighttime with the electric I have an electric candle, and it's so helpful to to just focus and it steadies everything stabilizes mm -hmm. right. But uh, you were sitting in the hot water, and looking at and gazing at the candle, and and, and now you don't do that anymore. No, I at, when I was doing that, I was going through um, serious. Um, hypochondria yeah i thought i was dying i was sober and anxiety anxiety yeah i was suffering from anxiety and this and this helped you sitting in the in the hot water and and looking at the candle i didn't know what to do i was just freaking out and and you naturally came up with the solution yeah which is a for it's meditating that's meditating. right well i i knew you know, um, I knew meditation was something that I needed to do. And I was freaking out. My sponsor in AA said, you know, you need to meditate and you need to pray and um, you need to go help somebody else. Mm -hmm. You need to stop focusing on yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was one of, you know, many things I was trying to do. So that 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 was your kind of entree into meditation? That, that was... You know, my entree was the very rudimentary AA uh, in the morning, make a gratitude list and be silent for 15 minutes. Okay. And so, but you have this repertoire and then you can choose whatever mood you happen to be in at that point in time, your meditation time, that you'll do a technique. Maybe, you know, after doing your preliminaries, you feel like doing the, you know, the water rising or maybe mm -hmm. you feel like the doing it. it's good to have different techniques that mm -hmm. you 
depending on how you feel at that well, particular yeah, time. Well, yeah, and you could get bored of one and you want right. to try a new one. Or, right. It's like anything else. Yeah. You know? So do you ever listen to sound when you're meditating? Mm-hmm. How does that work? Um, I just really like the cliche, stereotypical, you know, meditative sitar. Sounds like you're in a spa massage room yeah. <laughs> kind of yeah. music. Um, I don't like complete silence because um, certain kinds of music kind of help relax you. Oh, yeah. So um, I like to listen to um, really relaxing um, high vibration kind of music. So, but you're not always, when you're meditating and you say you were sitting in silence, you're not listening to music. No, only when I do the longer one. Uh, if I'm right. if I'm just doing like a 15 minute when I wake up right. thing, yeah. it's like if I can catch myself and I'm not late somewhere already or I don't have to jump out of bed or, you know, to take the dog out to pee or something like that. And I'm I actually have the ability to like, and I have the time. And I'll just kind of, in my head, count some, you know, gratitudes mm-hmm. and, and then just keep my eyes closed and lay there for 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. I think that's so great about counting the gratitudes. That's a good thing to count. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really great. But, and it's and, hard to wake mm-hmm. up angry if, you know, it's hard to be, you know, get up and be angry after you just thought about, you know, 10 things you're very grateful for. Yeah. And it's the flavor of that lingers on during the day some in some form or another mm-hmm. right? so but back to the music i find with music at night um music or sounds sounds of birds or fountains or in certain kinds of music i like percussive uh, marimba music that you know that it harmonically is not changing but rhythmically changes you know minimalistic okay. type stuff but it's it's a it's minimal it's minimalistic meditation because um there are two parts to meditation. The way I see it is concentration is one and mindfulness is the other. So with the music, definitely calms you down. It gets you peaceful. It gets you in a good state of mind to quiet the chatter and the, the, the nonsense that's mm-hmm. going, right? But in mindfulness, it's like your open awareness. You have this natural, pure awareness to whatever is happening. So if the music is going on, it's kind of, you're not free. Hmm. To pay attention to whatever you want to pay. That music is telling you what to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. You're tethered to that. Yeah. Well, that's why I like music that's very washy. Because once I'm kind of in, in, in you know, getting into my deeper mind states, um, the it's you almost... You don't hear it You anymore. don't hear the music anymore. Yeah. yeah. What you hear, you hear silence, actually. You do. That's why I like that. I can imagine if I had something rhythmic, a part of my brain would like be like, you know. Yeah, yeah. With you, (laughs) you'd be analyzing it, right? Well, you get used to it, though. I mean, you do get used to it. You get used. I guess like marimba music, if there's like polyrhythmic and it's Mm -hmm. kind of like there's no beginning and end, and it's kind of doing a thing. I guess Mm -hmm. it can kind of wash away. Yeah, it's actually these are guys that play electric guitars with mallets, so it's open tunings. Mm. And an ex Easter Island head is one of them, and and they just play, you know, these electric guitars with mallets. Mm-hmm. So there's no harmonic movement. Right. It's the great thing. It's a combination of stillness because harmonically and melodically it's not moving, but there is movement rhythmically. 
and that's right the source of everything mm-hmm. is the combination of stillness and movement stillness at the heart of it mm-hmm. but movement is also a reality on top of it so that's that's why it relates so um do you think it helps you cope in in your life that obviously you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't think it was helping i know but i still wanted to hear from you i still want to hear from you how you and if you think this is very well, helpful I, to you i i feel i don't do the long meditation nearly enough um i tend to lean on the longer meditation stuff when i'm seeking some more outside help um you know our lives get busy i find that more regularly you know the gratitude with the shorter meditation is there so i'm you know i'll go through phases of um kind of on it like sometimes every day for like two or three weeks and um it's just it's tough to with my schedule mm-hmm. to carve out an hour yeah oh yeah so but you don't have to do that like you know you can mm-hmm. or i don't have to i can right. i can do you know early on a sunday morning mm-hmm. do a longer meditation once a week right right you have one day one, one day. day a day of mindfulness right i call it that or Thich Han calls it Thich Han calls it a day of mindfulness right so if i do that but then there are times when um when there are some serious unresolved issues in my life mm-hmm that i need that hour every day to give me that boost because when you're done with that hour and you've consciously while in your meditative state you know are trying to release things that you don't want and trying to attract thing attract things that you do want or whatever it is you you come out of you come out of that meditation you feel really energized and powerful and it's it's pretty cool yeah oh yeah the longer you can meditate the better yeah sometimes when i'm just really kind of anxious about things that are going on i have to i have to do that mm-hmm. yeah you could also probably benefit if you take if you take off three to five days and just you know say i'm going to meditate four to six hours a day Wow, I couldn't even imagine that. That's amazing. It's fantastic. Mm. And that it has long-range residence. I mean, it stays. Huh. Yeah. You do that? I do it uh, two or three times a year, at least three time, two or three times a year in the winter. So three days in a row, you'll meditate four to six hours a day? Well, five to seven days. Oh, wow. In a row. Um, the goal is six to plus hours a day. I have to. You can't. Where? Pay. Where do you do it? Well, I go away. I go out of town. San Diego. There's a Zen center there. Mm. Um, but mostly in my hotel room. And even if I'm at the Zen center for six or seven hours, I'll go. I'll go back to the hotel. Um, or you know, traveling mm. around the summer vacation for a week, or winter and Christmas time for a week. You would love it. Mm. Six. Yeah. You build up to it. You know. You start at three hours a day, and by the the second, third day, you're at six. Wow. And <laughs> you, you would love it. You know, there's one observation about masses of the universe that that kind of turned me around, you know, a little off because 
you know, what you realize is that you are the universe, as, mm -hmm. as is everyone else in the universe. We are all the universe, right? Mm -hmm. But you're not trying to master anything because that has a, a connotation of you're dominating, you know, you're controlling or whatever. And we're, mm -hmm. we are the universe. That's mm -hmm. what we are. And it's about obliterating or quieting down the, the ego, right? And saying, oh, wait a second, this ego is a reality, but it's a limited story. It's not the whole story. Mm. That was my only immediate reaction. But do you think the fact that you're a musician has helped you, has anything to do with the fact that you are doing so well as a meditator? I mean, you've got, you're practicing. Well, first of all, I don't think I'm doing so well as a meditator. You're practicing, you're showing up every day and and and, and, and you're showing up for an hour extra on the weekend. I mean, that's. Well, it's not, a, like I said, it's not every day and it's not a, an extra hour. I like I like to try to. Um, I would like say. Every other day. Whatever. Yeah, I would say, yeah. You know, the practice of meditation, like I said, like, for instance, I think for me, um, in all honesty, it becomes more consistent when um, when I'm looking to achieve something or if I'm suffering from something, mm -hmm. um, particularly anxiety, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, I could be prone to, it's not even like deep anxiety. It's like a lot of times just, projecting or overthinking situations and forgetting that I really don't control anything. Um, but the meditation has such a great positive effect that um, I'll continue doing it and reaping the rewards of what I'm getting from it on a daily basis. And then kind of life takes over and then it starts to dissipate and then kind of ebbs and flows and, then it's there not as much, and then I need it again, and then all of a sudden I, I pick up the pace a little more. Yeah, well, it's beautiful that you found that, and it's been able to help you. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm no, I'm no Zen yogi. I am a normal person, musician who lives in a big city, who um, has a spiritual program and a way of life, and. Um, and I want things and I suffer from things. And because of my program, I've learned some meditation and, and I use it and I could probably get a lot more out of it. You know, I do definitely, you know, if you're listening to this and you haven't meditated, it's, it's just, there's no wrong way to do it. Just, just do it. Just start. And it's practice. And Crazy things will come into your head in the middle of it. Just got to be silent. Beautiful. Fantastic. Well, I learned a lot. Besides, I need to look at the horizon when I get seasick. <laughs> I don't have to be on a no, boat. No, you have to, to look at the horizon so you don't get seasick. That's what I mean. Yeah. I didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> I said Because <laughs> if you look at the horizon and you're already seasick, it's too late. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So it prevents you from getting seasick. Yeah. Okay. Um, but there's more that that is lovely stuff, um, and I really appreciate it. And I think it's uh, people will find it interesting to hear about your journey and how you've been whipped around up to the heights and the depths of rock and roll stardom, and how you've come out of it beautifully, and um, and the beautiful practice that you have. 
Well, thank you. People inspire people. Inspires me. Inspired me. Well, you inspire me, and I'm I'm grateful you had me here today. It was great to see you. And we'll continue to to argue about uh, back in the day. <laughs> and uh, it was a Wednesday. Is it, if people want to find you on the internet or social media, or whatever, how do they find you? If, um, you know, they want to. You can find me at uh, Brett Mazer on Instagram. Is it Brett Mazer? That's it. Mm-hmm. How do you spell it? B R E T M A Z U R. Okay. I'm verified, so just make sure the blue check mark is there. Okay. And hit me up. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. It's great seeing you. Good to see you too. Okay. All right. Take care. Okay. I hope that was as captivating for you as it was for me. And if you like this podcast, please leave a review and a rating. And please share it with your friends, your enemies, and anyone you think would benefit from listening to us. I want to thank the people that helped me with this podcast. Chase Crocha, Lonnie Ronaldo and my co-producer, the Hannah Bowers. And so until next time, I hope you can stay in a higher octave and let's stay in tune.